Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to episode 38 of the Culture Vacuum Podcast. I am your host, Samuel, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Calvin. Hey, it's me. We're at, we're at 38 already? Yeah. Well, wow. you're I... not at 38. I'm at 38. <laughs> Do you remember what episode I came on in? I don't listen back to them. I don't look back to them, so I have no idea. <laughs> Let me see. I'm gonna let me open the old the old podcast app. Uh, I would say your first episode appears to be uh, the Captain Marvel episode. I think. Yep. Yes. Yep. Episode yeah, thirty. Right. So this we is talked. your this is your ninth episode. Gosh, it doesn't feel like my ninth. That that would make it like how many months? Wow, we've been doing this a while, actually. <laughs> Two months. I never I never really thought I would be. Uh, I'm not sure if you're gonna cut this part out. Whatever. Uh, I never really thought I would be on something like this for that long, so uh, hey, it's definitely been an interesting experience. Look Crazy, at you. two months. Yeah, look at look me. At, look at you doing the pods. Well, you can't because this is a podcast and it's audio only. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we have fun. Yeah, uh, coming next to Culture Vacuum Plus, our exclusive streaming service, we have Existence Is Pain. Okay. It's a it's a channel. Wanna, is that where, like a product or? <laughs> it's a channel on Culture Vacuum Plus where uh, okay. Okay. the the words "existence is pain" flashes before on the screen with in various fonts, <laughs> colors, backgrounds, and musics. And <laughs> so okay, so it's not just like a like a still image, uh, so to say. It's a still image accompanied by some sort of tune of a sort, maybe some sort of jingle. Yeah, it's uh, with a prominent uh, artist by the name of Banksy. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but... They wouldn't have agreed to this. Are you sure? <laughs> uh, I can guarantee you I spoke with Banksy myself, okay. and Banksy said that he is... Uh, God. He will be designing from now until launch all of the uh, the different screens that you'll be looking at. So we will have thousands of screens <clears throat> Banksy approved mm-hmm. with, again, okay. just the words existence is pain in separate fonts colors yeah. and then rotating backgrounds with an assortment of stolen music Sto- stolen we could afford banksy <laughs> we had to steal the music i have to ask by the way i'm only asking i approve of this let's let's move forward and just say obviously i already knew this was happening i'm not shocked all these reactions are uh, are not that um but people may be wondering what sense it makes to hire an artist to do something that could be done effectively in Microsoft PowerPoint. Do you want, mm-hmm. do you want to elaborate on that maybe? Yeah. So you could, you could make like a pitch of this channel yourself, but we really want people to get a premium experience. Mm-hmm. So B- Banksy isn't just going to go into PowerPoint and type existence is pain and scroll through the font wheel. We're going to have custom fonts, what? uh, stylized presentation of the text and uh-huh. the the way the text is formatted okay. uh some brackets on some of the uh, does segments. Banksy make fonts <laughs> is, that a, is that a thing he does um is it a new skill it, he's learning or he's Banksy's always looking to stretch his horizons out okay so he's he, never made fonts before <laughs> yes he's but making he, fonts for us though yeah he thinks he can give it a shot it's pretty easy to make a font it's pretty easy to make a font. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah, yeah dude. Don't don't you know? No. Do you? Are you aware of what it takes to make a font? Yeah. You just got to, like, make it. Okay. All right. You That's just, good to hear. You decide if you want serifs or not. Mm-hmm. You know, stuff like and that. And a serif is... 
a serif is a. <laughs> it's a, like a, yeah. it's like you know, you know, a serif. It's like letters. It's like when the letters have those little points at the end of them. Oh, okay. <laughs> like it's a t- like a serifless a sans serif font. A capital T is just going to be that with like straight lines, but a serifed T. Okay. Like the, the T might be a little more angled, a little more stylized, you know? Serifs. Um, this is going to be tough without visuals, but I'm sure people are following along. Yeah, yeah, serifs. Yeah. Without problem. It's just We a have serif, a sophisticated though. audience. They understand typeface. Please, Calvin. <laughs> All right. It, it seems specialized and a little bit presumptuous of you. We're just going to let that pass, I think. Yeah, so Culture Vacuum yeah. Plus coming at some point. Thank you, happy... Banksy, for your collaboration. <laughs> it's not free, right? Oh, <laughs> Oh no, it's insanely expensive. Okay, how much? Well, you know what? We can we can talk after podcast. <laughs> In yeah. terms of pricing, I don't want to get physically angry uh, during the middle of the podcast. So how much we paid, we'll, Banksy? We'll Calvin, it's it's an irresponsible amount of money. That's good to know. Is this included with every single uh, subscription to Culture? This Vacuum is Plus? included in the in the base package. It is by wow. far our most expensive show to date. I so. I was not expecting Banksy to be as expensive as he was. Why are we... Okay. okay. Jason Momoa is about... What we paid Jason Momoa is like three times less than what Banksy's charging I us forgot to make this Jason. channel. Yeah, you're right. We had him. He's, that's already shot and filmed. Keep in mind, uh, this is not a program that's going to be out anytime in the next five years. Jason Momoa could be dead by the time this actually comes out. Absolutely. We have plans in place. Uh, we have a, what do they call it, like a skeleton's trigger or something? A dead man's trigger yeah. set up, essentially, uh, for if we cannot produce this by the, in our lifetimes, by the time that we die, uh, fucking micro-triggers around the world on various servers that have been hidden underground by me personally are going to uh, set off and, and just shoot the content uh, to all the screens and all the, all the devices and all the AI, and, and it's just going to be everywhere. That's the value that Calvin brings to this service. <laughs> it's why yeah. we pay him the big bucks. To be Absolutely. Here. I brought my own shovel. It was really hard work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't want to talk about Robert Pattinson as Batman because I'm not a hack. I'm not going to so- talk about the petitions of people who don't <laughs> want Robert Pattinson to be Batman because you- that's stupid. <laughs> Can we at least talk about the petitions? Because the petitions represent everything I feel like I've been seeing in uh, just movie media in general lately, which mm-hmm. is this idea that a trailer can be put out and a movie can be physically changed or have like sales affected by something that wasn't even made by the director of the film. <laughs> and I think that's just kind of incredible. Um, and this is a little bit different in that it's just like a cast- casting yeah. choice. But again, no one's seen any images <laughs> From this movie, like if we're just talking specifically in terms of a casting option as Robert Pattinson, it'd be one thing if maybe they released some like background footage of him acting and he just wasn't selling it or something. But this is just him being associated with the film, and people are immediately like, "No, why?" <laughs> uh, if you're the type of person who signed the Robert Pattinson petition, I know exactly what you're thinking because. He's not mm-hmm. made that many big movies since the vampire movies, okay? <laughs> he's made some really good movies, though. No, he, he's not made big movies, though. So everyone yeah, yeah. who oh, signed said, that yeah. petition, they just know him from Twilight. They have no idea. Now, if you are mad about Robert Pattinson, you need to watch You don't need to watch all these movies. You need to watch either Good Time or The Rover. He's made lots of other very good movies, but those are the two you should watch. And yeah. then after you've watched Good Time or The Rover, either one, 
Uh, then tell me if you think Robert Pattinson is a bad actor. Not if you th- if you think he's a good Batman or not, but a good mm-hmm. actor. Because I think any good actor can play Batman. And by the way, that's really, I mean, that's all the actor needs to do. In terms of what an actor needs to do, I think, as long as you're good at acting, there are other people in the movie production business that can help you out in the places that you lack, right? Yeah. Maybe he doesn't look like Bruce Wayne. Guess what? We have a props department. We have people in makeup. There's all sorts of work that can be done on this approach. And also, stuff. anyone can look like Bruce Wayne. He just has to be handsome. That's by the, the way, yeah, that exactly. That's the only. That's the only qualification to be Bruce Wayne. Not even white, really. Like I think you, you could only really say maybe, maybe like the black hair. Yeah, I guess. But, but you can dye it. Color, yeah, you can dye that, and it's not even like it needs to be a specific design. Yeah. or something. As long as he's wearing the suit. And that can also be, by the way, very wildly in design. So I think this whole thing's a little bit silly. But I think we've kind of, as as a, a community, especially as an internet community, we've kind of brought up this ideal that the audience knows what's best for them, which in some cases I think is right. But in a lot of cases, people just don't understand what goes in, into the movie-making process, and they're probably reacting to the wrong stuff. Yeah, and being mad over a movie you haven't seen yet is... a uh... Well, you know, we've seen that before. <clears throat> Captain Marvel. Uh, anyone, like, Batman, I've I've talked to people who've made a very good argument that Superman probably does need to be white because of that Kansas origin. The whole point of him is he's someone who's extremely different from everyone around him, but he can blend in. So if you were going to do black Superman, he, would, he couldn't be from Kansas. If you're going to do black Superman, he'd have to land in a place where the population is predominantly black, one. Um, but then, two, you're kind of losing out on what you're talking about, which is the small town value sort of thing that comes with Superman. That's a little bit lost when you think about where those places would be. Yeah, and then, like, he has the privilege of a white person. It's like, those things all play into why Superman probably does need to be a white guy. I understand that. But Batman, Batman could be black. I think Michael B. Jordan would have been just as good a Batman as Robert Pattinson because, you know— are there a lot of uh, extremely wealthy black people? No, but they do exist. So. <laughs> <laughs> the freaking got him, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> there, uh, there aren't that many rich people to begin with, but I know some of them are black. So. <laughs> no, damn Someone just shows up at your doorstep and hits you with five, like, $100 bills. And he's like, there's more on the way, but this is what I could carry. <laughs> <laughs> This is all yeah. I had at the time, but I promise there's more. If you're mad about Robert Pattinson, watch those two movies. And then if you're still mad, that's fine. But <laughs> we're never going to be able to please everyone. We live in a culture of absolute hatred and I don't know how to how to escape it. Uh, what did we say earlier? Existence is, is pain or something? Yeah, existence is pain. Absolutely true. It's never been more true than it is today. And I don't want anyone to forget it. And that's the message of our response to uh, Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson getting casted, or whatever yeah. his name is. I don't Pattinson. have a huge reaction. He's a stellar actor. I'm sure he'll do a very good job if he's given a good script and Matt Reeves doesn't duff the, the directing job. Yeah, by the way, exactly. It's not all on him. Like he, He's not the make or break for Batman. There's so many other people that are going to have to be involved with this project. People act like there's always one part of a movie that like needs to be right. Absolutely not. There's a lot of moving parts. Here's the statement I will make. If the B- Robert Pattinson Batman movie is bad, I think we're all going with Battinson, by the way, as the nickname. If, I like that. If Battinson 1 is bad, uh, I don't think that Robert will be the problem with that movie. 
I, I think yeah. much like Batman and V Superman, Ben Affleck, best part of the movie, but the movie was shit. I, I would I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I don't think Ben Affleck was the best part of Batman v Superman, but in concept, I understand what you're saying. It, it's not going to be on the. I don't. It's either I wasn't paying that much attention, but there wasn't horrifying, monopolistic, uh, cannibalizing uh, streaming media news this week. Yeah, we were pretty. Um, that was pretty empty this week. All there's been this week is the Robert Pattinson thing and a lot of stuff about Call of Duty, I guess. But that's more gaming. Yeah. Do we talk about gaming? Uh, we do, but like Call of Duty is oh, it's a franchise that comes out every year. Cool. That's right. This one's pretty. This one is kind of interesting, I think, because of the whole. And we don't need to talk about it. But yeah. there's this whole thing about like how realism is affecting gaming and how that's kind of extended in this game once they've revamped the engine and the way it looks. And after seeing some footage of it, we I think we are getting to that point where. I, I think we're gonna get some more petitions from parents, <laughs> some more questions asked. <laughs> I think it's. Year. I mean, I think it is interesting that the franchise completely pushed the eject button on, uh, on story mode with black with Blops Four. That was a purely multiplayer game, and then they and then they right back into doing story mode for Modern Warfare. But maybe that game was just in development, so they didn't want to hamstring it, but. Because that was also, Black Ops 4 was using maybe a modified version, but more their previous version of the engine, too. It wasn't on this new one that they're planning for yeah, uh, so Modern Warfare. It could be Modern Warfare uses this new engine, and they were building the story in, the, in that engine. But for the future, they're still not going to have story mode. Because story mode is expensive to make. Yeah. And not a lot of people play it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't. played it. I've always played story mode. I can't play these games, period, because of uh, they'll make me violently ill. But oh, for, <laughs> do you have motion for, sickness or something? Yeah, first person games get me super sick. Oh damn! Well, the best games aren't first person, so lucky you. Uh, Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven. Damn it! You, you can. I think you might be able to. Ah, uh, but third person's probably pretty similar too, huh? Yeah, they probably just messed it up. Anyway, so that's uh, news, I guess. Let's get right into the review because uh, I really like. I want to start this review. Yeah, we <laughs> yeah. were gonna do uh, Godzilla, but then reviews came out. Uh, and then I saw Godzilla, and I'm glad we're not doing Godzilla. Here's my review of Godzilla. It was probably a good movie at some point, and then the studio's like, no, put more people in it. And the Oh, pe- what? There's gorgeous kaiju action in this movie, undeniably. But yeah. even, like, say what you want about that first Godzilla. The people mm-hmm. played an important part of it. They, when it came time to focus on the monsters, this movie focused on the monsters. This mm-hmm. new one, the final action sequence is cut between the final fight between Godzilla and Ghidorah, while also cutting in between the boring humans trying to find their terrible, I hate it daughter in the yeah. middle of the collapsing city. Uh, that sounds really good for pacing. Absolutely. What you want to do during a, a tight action scene, um, and this is one of the places are you clapping? John Wick. Fails. Oh, no, that was upstairs again. I think uh, it stopped, though. Okay. Uh, I, I didn't announce this at the beginning of the podcast, but uh, I have activity in my abode that may uh, seep its way into the podcast. You can consider it a little bit of an extra tidbit, maybe a little bit of a look into my personal life that uh, not everyone's going to get. So there you go. Lucky you. Um, but yeah, this this definitely seems like a, a place where pacing is just not even considered. There are a lot of monster, monster and more so disaster movies that I feel kind of do this really poorly. Godzilla's always been a franchise. Uh, Pacific Rim, I think, kind of does it sort of well, but also really struggles with the human moments. 
and then especially uh, the original uh, Godzilla 1998 had way too much people. The monster design really shouldn't have been Godzilla at all in the first place. But, I mean, that as just a movie had way too much focus on, like, the people in it and just weird, superfluous stuff that was happening with them. Um, Geostorm a little bit had that issue, too. Mm. But I'm kind of blown away that these movies keep making the same mistakes. If you're going to make a movie that's based around destruction, disaster, and violence, and that's kind of the, you know, the purpose of it, then what are you doing trying to throw in all this stuff that's not going to amount um to anything anyways because you're not good at doing the dramatic bit yeah and not to like poo poo the humans entirely i guess in the first version of this movie before the studio put their mandate on it ken Watanabe has a very good arc he's still a minor character in it but ken Watanabe, he has this beautiful moment towards the end of the movie uh that is just it's it's great but it could have been better if the movie itself wasn't concerned with toning down the monster action for some reason ugh. yeah but this that's really why we're that's about that's why we're not reviewing godzilla though what we are reviewing no. is the elton john uh musical biopic rocket man i'd call it a fever dream as well <laughs> yeah and i fucking love this movie i also really love this movie i was um i'll tell you i was going i went into this movie knowing a few things one i'm a huge fan of Taron egerton i think that's how you say his name Edgerton, uh, I think. Edgerton. Okay, I'm a huge fan of him. Uh, two, I did not know that much about Elton John. I didn't really... I, and this is the weird part. I didn't, I didn't think I had grown up listening to that much Elton John music. So when I sat down in the theater, and like the first star, song starts playing, I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I recognize this one. And then pretty much every subsequent song after that, I realized, oh, I've been listening to Elton John. I just didn't know it was him. There's full, full upfront disclosure here. Uh, there's going to be a lot of comparison between this movie and uh, Bohemian Rhapsody that you'll see in both popular uh, discussion and also this discussion. Because yeah. uh, this movie is everything I wanted Bohemian Rhapsody to be. Really? I, didn't, I never saw Bohemian Rhapsody. It's very movie. bad, and anyone who tells you it's good is lying to you. Uh <laughs> Not if Rami Malek can save it. By the way, an example of an actor who can save a film if he did do well. There's a great video by Patrick H. Willems about musician-based biopics in general. But he focuses it around all the jokes that Dewey Cox, the Dewey Cox story Walk Hard did. You know, Dewey Cox, it opens. He's sitting by a wall before a show. And then Tim Meadows shows up, and then he says, Dewey Cox needs to think about his entire life before he can play. <laughs> you good? But that's how, you know, so that's how, full force. that's how Walk Hard opens, basically. So, okay. But most musician-based biopics are like that. That's how, that's how Bohemian Rhapsody opens. You see Freddie getting ready for uh, the Live Aid performance, and mm-hmm. then... Just before he's about to go on stage, it cuts, and he's a little boy in England again. It's, mm-hmm. So when you're telling a story in a movie, uh, because movies are the way they are, if you do a flash-forward to a flashback, everything you do in your movie needs to lead in, thematically speaking, to the thing you open the movie in, right? That that would make sense. You don't want to yeah. pro- produce some sort of environment yeah. that's so, kind of like... But the problem with these biopics is they show every moment from the musician's life or they try to, and it's kind of hard to believe other than they had a career which led them to this concert. There's not really a challenge with this legendary performance 
that showing me his dad mm-hmm. being abusive to him as a kid, those two things don't really mesh well together. So okay. what I really liked about Rocketman is they, the way they got around the musician about to do a show and then has to think about his entire life before he plays. They started in rehab instead. And from a filmmaking storytelling, as a filmmaking storytelling device, it works so much better because it tells me everything you see in this movie is what Elton John credits with his way to rehab. And also sets up the character really well, too, because he, he walks in and he's immediately in stark contrast to everyone else in that room. He's wearing his crazy getup with all like the horns and like the wings and stuff like that. So you kind of get a, a hint of where his personality is, which makes it really interesting later on where you where you immediately see him as a kid. And he's like, oh, he's completely different now. The other great thing that they do is uh, the full disclosure with every uh, with every musical biopic you have to take into a musician biopic is the, all, almost always the estate or the artists themselves are involved with its making, which means mm-hmm. that they get final say in a lot of the story. The big thing with Bohemian Rhapsody is the living members of Queen are credited executive producers on that movie. Mm-hmm. And what do you know? Bohemian Rhapsody happens to show that Brian May is the smartest, most talented, most understanding friend in the entire world. And nothing really would have been that bad with uh, the Queen if Freddie could have just stopped being so so darn flamboyant and problematic and drug addicted. <laughs> you can easily pass the buck because he, he's dead. Good job. Um, I, I, I will say this. I think I, I look at this movie in two lenses. One is not fully developed yet. One lens is what you're talking about, where, like, what's the actual history here? What are other people saying versus what... Um, and I, I should have stayed... If I'd known better that um, actual the actual music people involved in the story also have a hand in the movies, I would have stayed for the credits and seen, like, the producer's name. Oh, I can... Um, so I'm I, not sure. I can tell you, Elton John and his husband are both producers on this movie. Okay, so they both produced it, which means that this is going to be a little bit of a, of a biased view, like, regardless of which way you, you swing it. However, there's kind of two ways. You can you can kind of view it that way, um, which I think I'm probably, like, in my head, mentally going to get more into once I understand the situation more. And then, for me, I'm probably going to be looking at this as just, like, a film itself. How yeah. does this do as a movie telling a story? And they were much more, I'd say this is a more honest biopic. Like, they're pretty blatant in what they show Elton doing and the stuff that he was going through. So it's not like they completely censored it, but I can also guarantee you, I don't know what it was, but there was something they wanted to put in this movie that Elton and his husband said no to. So you you should always know that with any of these things, but... Mm-hmm. That doesn't always ruin the project necessarily, but no. with some cases like Bohemian Rhapsody, it's really blatant how much of a passion, passionate ego project this was, where Rocket Man, yes, there's ego in it, but it, Elton was also willing to be honest with himself. I felt like this movie was trying to use Elton John's history, and I'll probably get into this more in the review. But they're trying to use Elton John's history and the fact that he can make a movie that's going to get this amount of visibility to attempt to, I don't know, I I guess shed some light into the concerns, uh, especially that maybe people in the LGBT community might be having as well. There are a few parts in this movie that kind of address that sort of thing. Um, I think this might have been trying to also address some concerns with celebrity culture um, and the idea of like fame and fortune bringing you happiness. 
Um, and I think for, for me, that's, those are the two biggest lessons I feel like I got from this. Yeah. So the movie is also, it's not a musician biopic. It's a musical biopic. So, and like a musical, instead of shoehorning songs into the story, because they don't have time to focus on other things, the songs are the story themselves. So for instance, uh, one of my favorite Elton John songs, Saturday night's all right for fighting. Yeah, <laughs> that song is used to show the period of Elton's life where he's still growing up in he's still growing up as a boy in England uh, yeah. and he's starting to go out into the world. But he's still playing these tiny little gigs in the in the in the pub just because he likes yeah. music so much. So, and by the way, he's still pretty limited at that point in his life, too. He's not like really standing out too much. He's still a part of a larger group. It's not like Elton John and the gang. He's still Reggie at this point, I think, as well. Yeah, believe so. So yeah, yeah and, and it's just before he gets discovered and goes touring with those uh, with those music with those uh, jazz musicians, blues musicians, the soul something. Yeah, I, I, don't, I also forget it was the soul something. Yeah, so soul he, tour. Yeah, he goes touring with them around England just to make money, but it's it's his first exposure to the rock star lifestyle or a limited view of it. Yeah, but, but the entire scene kind I of think, like. I think that's so much better than what most of these musician biopics do where it's like the way Bohemian Rhapsody is broken up. It's almost it's after the third time it happens, you realize that this is just going to be the rest of the movie where Freddie does gay stuff and makes poor choices and makes people angry. And then they write a legendary queen song and then Freddie does gay (laughs) stuff and makes poor choices and pisses people off. And then they write another legendary queen song. Oh, wow. That's really interesting because this story, I felt like, didn't even – I mean, the songs happened a lot, and you're right. My One of my favorite parts about this movie is how well it – not only the uh, the pacing, but just how well the songs are integrated into what's happening in the scene. But the focus of the movie I never felt was on the songs themselves. They were always kind of like this part that was meant to express emotionally what the character was feeling at the time or possibly kind of lead into what was going to be happening next. Yeah, um, I, and I, I think this movie probably would have been worse if it was, had been about like, oh, what rhymes with orange? This, oh wow, new new tune. Yeah, that you, would have really been bad. Yeah, you. Sh- the first part is I think your song is the. F- I don't know if. Let's assume your song is Elton's first single. What the movie itself is thematically about, really, is it's about love. And Elton sure. John yeah. is this person who he spent his entire life uh, looking for love of some kind. He finally gets it in this friend played by Jamie Dornan, who mm-hmm. it's a platonic, it's a friendship kind of love. But that's the first time once he has this love with this friend of his, he has this final creative spark. Mm-hmm. And they write this first song. It's when they're once that friendship is forged, their creative partnership is also solidified because this man was Elton John's longtime songwriter. I believe they yeah. still work today uh, on stuff. I, I looked it up after the movie. They, they they still do write to this day. Once that friendship is forged, that first experience of real love that he has in his life, that's when they write their first song and that's when they start touring. But as soon as that starts to go away – because his friend, he hooks up with the with the pretty lady at the party. Once he has that feeling of abandonment, he's vulnerable again, and he starts looking for love in someone else. So that's when the manager comes in, and where he's looking for love again, but he can't really get it because this person is not willing to give it. 
Yeah, he gets what he believes to be love because he probably hasn't had a lot of good experiences, or we're set to believe he hasn't had a lot of good experiences to know what authentic love is. He gets more lust, I think, in mm-hmm. those moments, which at that age and with that amount of inexperience that we're kind of shown, like whenever whenever explicitly told he hasn't had much experience um, in any sort of like homosexual sexual relations or anything, uh, or just sexual relation, relations in general, really. Um, but he, he does get that and then he, he's kind of excited and I think he, he kind of leans too far into that, but I don't want to, I want to kind of really quickly mention how much I liked you said, was it Jamie Bell? Yeah. Jamie Um, Bell. Not Jamie Dornan. That's a different actor. Okay. (laughs) Jamie Bell from, uh, from Fant Forstick of, um, unfortunately, but he, he did a really good job in this movie in the role of Bernie. Um, and I think my favorite part about those two was when they first meet, they kind of meet at a coffee shop and Elton introduces himself. Well, Jamie Bell says his full name. I'm Bernie, whatever his last name was. And then Elton said, Elton John says, oh, I'm Elton. And then Bernie says, oh, okay. And then Elton John says, that's a stage name. And Bernie says, you can tell me your actual name once we know each other better. Um, and then they kind of like don't really do a good job of communicating immediately. Like, they keep cutting each other off, and they keep kind of having, like, pauses and stuff like that. But that really does sell to me the fact that these are two people, like, meeting each other for the first time and trying to get a feel for one another, and then slowly coming to understand how necessary they're probably going to be to each each other in the career moving forward. It's a really good relationship, and, you know, like, uh, it's always impactful to me to see a good friendship portrayed on screen. And by the way, I think it really does come into a culmination there's a point <clears throat> we it, it's it's the point right before um they start going on that soul tour when they're living in an apartment and uh they're up on the roof and Elton John has just basically confessed that he's um he is gay or he's considering that he might be gay to uh Bernie and a few others but he's with Bernie in this scene and uh, he he kind of Bernie says to him, you know what? You have to stop apologizing. You have to stop this or that. You have to go for what you want, and you know, really just grab it. Mm-hmm. And then Elton John leans in to kiss him, and Bernie says, "Oh no!" But he immediately says right after that, "I love you." He yeah. makes sure that Elton John understands this isn't me saying I don't love you. I do love yeah. you. This is just not the way that and I'm. Yeah, going, going back to like he he's a this is a man who he doesn't know what love is supposed to be so once he finally gets it in a platonic sense he doesn't quite know how to react to it and that shows you oh he's very he's still very vulnerable and he doesn't know how to make that association yet which is explains why he would be vulnerable to this abusive to the to this abusive partnership in his manager and And by the way i i think the movie did an incredible job I, i i didn't know elton john's story before this but i think it did a really good job at making me when when he was with the manager initially i was like damn this guy is getting some hot ass <laughs> that was my initial thought i did not think for a second that he was gonna be like taken advantage of or something the movie sold me on this just being an attractive guy that he was with yeah no it's uh yeah. it, the actor's name is richard madden he's also rob stark uh the son of ned stark in game of thrones oh you said stark and i immediately thought the avengers i'm like another disney thing <laughs> <laughs> so what's what's funny about what's funny about this? So the character that he plays is also played by Aidan Gillen in Bohemian Rhapsody. This guy he managed both Queen and Elton John. He managed Queen before Elton John. But we have Ooh, two crossover. we have two Game of Thrones actors portraying the same person. And I'll tell you, he's shown as a disgusting <laughs> slime ball. In uh, actually, he he's shown as a 
he's not shown as a bad guy in Bohemian Rhapsody. In Bohemian Rhapsody, this guy is shown as he believes in Queen and he knows and he's and he fights on Queen's behalf and he fights for them when the when the when the record labels being uh, doesn't want to take risks on the song Bohemian Rhapsody. But then mm-hmm. when opportunity presents itself for Freddie to betray Queen is when he's like, well, I think Freddie's the moneymaker. So like he's shown as more shrewd in Bohemian Rhapsody. But here he's shown as outright abusive. And the yeah. family of this guy has come out and say said, hey, that's not what he was really like. So take that with a grain of salt. What we're talking about specifically in this movie, when we say things like he's abusive – and we give his actual name. We mean the character in this film. Yeah, I th- yeah. Let me. I need to get the guy's real name. Oh, John Reed. John Reed. The the movie is this. It's this series of sequences, and a lot of it is structured like a play, like a musical. Yeah. If you watch a lot like of a stage th- play. Yeah. If you yeah. Wa- the Honky Cat sequence where their relationship really takes off and Elton starts making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. That sequence is structured almost exactly as it would play out in a musical. Other sequences are shown more theatrically, but the way certain scenes transition, especially as Elton gets more and more into drugs and time becomes Mm -hmm. more and more fluid for the movie, the way a lot of those scenes start is how you would see it in a play. Like, uh, in a musical, so, like, he he leads into – he sings a song, and then all of a sudden, on the stage, the lights would go out, and the actor would walk over to a table, lights would go back up, and he's talking with a character – uh, with a spotlight on them is probably how you would yeah. d- do that on Broadway. So it's interesting because there isn't a Elton John actual musical that you can go see. So they constructed this with a musical, with a stage musical in mind, and they mm-hmm. they strike this really interesting balance between the between theatrical and uh, and stage uh, sequences f- for how they do the music. And this entire thing is, I mean, that's absolutely right. I feel like I'm watching kind of three movies at once. There's the musical, uh, there's the biopic, and then there's this third side of this kind of drug-induced, there's symbols everywhere. Um, There's, it it, kind of goes into this more graphics-heavy, like stuff, like lights are going off on the screen and there's smoke everywhere and stuff. And it's just this, I'm not explaining it very well. But it feels like there's this a uh, there's this amalgamation of something spiritual and magical going on, kind of at all times in the background, carrying the characters through these kind of segments throughout Elton John's memory. I don't think the marketing sold this movie very well, also, because if you watch the trailers for it, the first trailer does show that it's going to be a little bit different. Uh, mm-hmm. they, so they show that club that he played in where he starts floating at the piano and the entire audience starts floating with him. Yeah, why but, didn't I just say that? Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. exactly what I mean. But the <laughs> the follow up, tra- the second trailer, the main trailer that they showed was much more traditional, where it made it look like it was going to be a regular musician biopic. But I I don't know if they made the right call or not because no. I think if you think go into this thinking it's going to be another musician biopic, the musical aspect is going to delight you. Where yes, as soon as they start playing the bitches back you get you buy into it and i think it's a much better surprise if you go in elton john's in rehab and you're like okay here we are regular musician biopic and then all of a sudden they start singing the bitches back and he starts harmonizing with his younger self which is by the way that was a great way to open it 
that was an incredible way to to open it and immediately ground us in okay this is him and it's the past and oh the music's not actually happening in real life because it was just and for me i had seen i think that second trailer so when the the movie starts and he starts singing and all of a sudden everyone in the neighborhood is singing with him and then he's getting yelled at by his mom i was so confused (laughs) i was like wait did that just happen are we supposed to believe like in the past, he was able to get everyone singing with him. Do you know how to sing at that point? Yeah. And that's when I was able to kind of get, oh, okay, whenever there's, like, kind of that sort of singing, we're not supposed to believe everything happening during the scene is actually happening. Like, to that point in the film, I don't think he, people even knew he, sung, he sang. Yeah. It was just a kid. He was singing to kind of transfer him from being older to young. Taron Edgerton as Elton John, he did his own singing for this which yeah. I'm sure they did some pitch correcting, but he did a very good job, and it's a very physical role too. Yeah, you can pitch correct, but you can't. Um, you cannot correct someone having the mannerisms of a singer who's doing a good job singing. Yeah, I think that that that's something that takes work, regardless of pitch correction. I think he did an incredible job singing. I think he did an incredible job singing and acting at the same time. I'm not sure also about like his uh, his background, but he seemed to be very comfortable in putting himself in this world that's having him do a lot of things that I think would make a lot of actors uncomfortable. I've seen Bohemian Rhapsody. Remy Malek's performance is fine, but if we're going to say Bohemian Rhapsody is Oscar-worthy, then you have to nominate. Unless there are 10 other films this year that are demonstrably better than Rocketman, you need to give Rocketman mm-hmm. a Best Picture nomination or else you look like a hypocrite. You need to give... Uh, a, there's you know there's a lot more year left. There's six more months left. There mm-hmm. could be five other actors who are better deserving. But, like, Taron Edgerton, I think, is probably given the year's best performance for a male actor. And yeah, He's definitely putting in the work in this film. Yeah, and he, so, like... Bohemian Rhapsody's existence sort of cheapens the Oscars even more because a movie like this comes out, it does the musician biopic so right that mm-hmm. once you look at something like Bo- – you compare it to Bohemian, which got all this Oscar buzz for some reason, and you're like, well, I guess Rocket Man has to get Oscars now because a movie as bad as Bohemian Rhapsody got so many. <laughs> No, not a single goddamn one. Suicide Squad got an Oscar or something, right? Yeah. For, for, uh, for, make- for special effects? For makeup. <laughs> for makeup. <laughs> you said for me. I said special effects and immediately thought of um, the crocodile guy. And then you said makeup and I realized what that meant. That meant people saw him and thought, that man, that's real good. <laughs> I think that was a mix between the two. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, kind of, kind of to like get towards the end of the film, it, it kind of, this whole thing moves from him being a kid, um, and then he's kind of developing his music talent. He's touring with the Soul uh, Group. He switches managers to this new abusive person he meets, and then he starts to kind of cut off ties. And this is where I realized, oh, this is going to be a story about depression. Yeah, this is going to be a story about depression and trying to make up for things that you're lacking. Yeah, um, and it does an incredible job of showing how he's not only losing things, but he himself is now pushing people away when he doesn't want to be, which is the exact the exact sort of thing that someone who's in this depressed state does. They start to push people away. They start to um, abuse drugs and other medications. They start to find ways to kind of escape out of their lives. And it was really harrowing to watch Taron Egerton, not just in terms of acting, do all this, but then they start to show him balding, and he starts to get more wrinkled, and he starts to look more tired, and he starts to have more of a trigger temper. 
and Taryn Egerton is selling it the whole time. Yeah, you're seeing this person who's you're seeing this this lack of love in his life, and as and he's pushed everyone who actually does care about him away, specifically Jamie Bell. Yes, and he 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 loses he lo- he starts to lose time too. Yeah, the that's pin- an incredible thing too. Yeah, there's and the- it's not like I think there's a way you can do it. I think some movies do it where it's like this huge big thing. All of a sudden, all oh, the scenes change and the lights change, and all oh, it's a different time. But in this movie, it's done so classically. He he essentially. I mean, I don't know if you were about to explain it or not. <laughs> yeah, but no. Like, so the low point of the movie. I need to get the soundtrack up. But the low point of the yeah. movie, ironically enough, is the title song. It's Rocket Man. Like that. Yeah. That's one of Elton's best. That's one of the song. Like he's he has so many great songs. But like that's probably one of his best known songs. And mm-hmm. it's this super depressing sequence in the movie itself. It's he's his drugs his drug use is so out of control that he regularly has overdoses or uh or heart attacks and he but since he's this enormous uh this enormous product that's been sold his manager just keeps taking him to the hospital patching him up and sending him from what the movie tells us from the hospital to a giant performance within hours of each other to four, the the call was like the, the call was literally oh he he the, the people are saying he had a heart attack and then his manager's like oh we just heard it was chest pains go ahead and log him for four and the guy's like wait your your client just had this and he's like nah nah four is good and then he just hangs up on the dude yeah so he was ready to just keep putting him out there that scene continues on with him on stage and the camera's just kind of spinning around him and I'm I'm not sure if it was the Rocket Man song or a different one. But it's showing him kind of changing costumes as the camera spinning. And I think in a different movie that would have been seen as like a positive, oh man, he's traveling the world. He's playing for all these different people. But in this one, what it's symbolizing is him just not really giving a shit where he is at any point in no, time. It's, it's ex- he might be at one concert or another. It's extremely dark where he yeah. he shows, he's in the he comes out of the hospital in the sequence. He goes to the hospital, gets, gets his heart fixed, I guess. And then they slap him into this Dodgers this this glittery Dodgers suit and then he's out of it they hand him a bat and he puts on a smile and he walks on stage and does the end of Rocket Man yeah and by the way they show him practicing that smile yeah <laughs> like previously he's just he's in the mirror he's he's looking in the mirror and he smiles and some fuck behind me by the way I'm I haven't mentioned this dude I've been extremely oh you know what I'm I'm gonna have to circumvent this review uh, Sam, there was a dude behind me who every single time uh, Taron Egerton kissed a man, every single time he hugged a man or something, the dude would like, I don't know, like pretend to barf or something. Ew. Like two rows behind me. Him and like a group of people. And then they giggle to each other. I'm like, how fucking old are you? Ugh, Jesus. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just... I did not. That was that. That could have soured my uh, moving going experience. However, Taron Egerton is too fantastical he's too handsome he he carried it through and i was able to move forward yeah this this movie is is stupid good but it does adhere to a lot of the biopic traits tropes and if you watch that pat if you don't watch a lot of them if you watch that patrick willems video and you watch mm-hmm. this you'll see where those tropes pop up but i feel that because of how it's structured the musical structure allows it to either not it not be a problem or it finds a different way around those tropes where you don't really need to see uh the creative process throughout the movie because they focus on the creative process at the beginning but 
because mm-hmm. it's a musical, the story and the music drives itself. Yeah, we're we're said to believe that. Oh, okay, these guys have got a thing going. He writes the music. Uh, he, I mean, he writes the lyrics. This guy writes the music, and then he performs it as Elton John. Yeah, Bing Bang Boom, whatever. Get that over because that over with because the focus of the movie is going to be the depression and the drugs and the abuse. Yeah, essentially that this man had to go through. Once we. He there's there's several more bender sequences where he's losing track of time. He's going further and further down this hole as his life's falling apart, and mm-hmm. it finally all culminates in him going to rehab. And because it's a musical, you can get away with this. Everyone shows up, and it brings the theme back to it, where yeah, he's been looking for love his entire life. He couldn't get the kind of love that he wanted, and then he finally learns to accept and love himself. It's a very simple, yeah. uh, it's a very simple theme, but it it just, it goes so far, and I really really appreciated how they did it. Talk about this being set up like a stage play. That was, that was exactly what I was thinking when the scene was like carrying out, because we're brought back, like you're saying, to the beginning of the movie where he is in that circle. And then all of a sudden, people from his past start stepping forward, wearing the clothes that they were wearing, looking like they were wearing, like looking like they looked back then, and giving what is essentially a summation of everything their character has been pushing to that point, and just challenging him with, okay, now that you've gone through all that, how are you going to respond to what I'm saying now? You know? Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it really, it's great. It's really fantastic. Um, we haven't even really talked about the mom, the grandma, the dad. At all, those were in super integral parts of like his, especially his early life, and all of them are kind of met back around towards the end. Yeah, and why I like this movie so much is because the fraught relationship with his mother, his grandmother, his father, it mm-hmm. all plays into a man who had, who did not have love, who was looking for it and tried to yes. find it. Where his father is this person who didn't want him because he hated his mother didn't want to have kids and he was strapped down his dad finally leaves his dad finds love and his dad has two sons and his dad actually loves his sons in a way he doesn't really love elton and it's just that was extremely sad to see yeah and And i think this is a movie we we might have talked about this recently there's a movie where a person was trying to deal with what it was like to have father issues but it was clear whoever was writing it had never actually dealt (laughs) with any issues with their dad and this one i i really felt like this was being written and being approached by someone who understands what it's like to be in this sort of situation i really appreciated them not trying to cheapen it and i think having elton john as a producer in that regard would actually help that moment where you could go to elton and say hey what was it like meeting your half brothers and having that perspective to speak would really have would really aid in writing that scene Oh my gosh, I can't believe he didn't just... The fact that he was able to make it to the car without, like, visibly crying, I don't know. I don't know how I would have dealt with, like, a situation like that. That was so fucked. Yeah, the the relationship with his mom is... His mother is someone who loved him, but she... Because she was the way she was, it was never really enough for her. And... No. Yeah, it, she had something else missing. Yeah, she loved him, but she still had cared for him out of obligation. Mm-hmm. And, and then towards the end, it, it's it's clear that she has started to attribute what's lacking in her life to him as his fault, which essentially probably happened after the dad left and yelled at her. I have I don't have to deal with you. I don't have to deal with this house. I don't have to deal with that boy. 
and now everything's on Elton. What have you done, Elton? I mean, and it's crazy because one second, towards the end of the movie, one second she's asking him for money, and the next she's saying she never should have had him. Yeah. I can't imagine what it's like to deal with a parental figure like that. Oh, wait, I can. But <laughs> not to that extreme, at least. We always avoid going point by point on movies, but yeah, I think you should look at Rocket Man and you should compare it to other there there are great biopics that do follow that formula that work a lot better you're going to the reason you're going to see a lot of people compare it to Bohemian Rhapsody is because of Bohemian Rhapsody doesn't really have thematic consistency it seems more concerned with telling the story of Queen altering history like Freddie gets diagnosed with AIDS in this movie 2 years before he was actually diagnosed why because they don't know because they since the movie had no theme the only way to add dramatic tension to the live aid concert at the end of the movie is diagnosing freddie with aids before he does live aid so literally changing history (laughs) yeah it's it's, and that was a that was a problem this movie didn't have to deal with um i i only learned this because i i told my sister that i liked rocket man and we spoke a bit about uh bohemian rhapsody but it's like it, apparently that movie did a lot of transitions where it would have just the year that was going to be happening just pop up on the screen and like an interesting font or something like, oh, it's 19 whatever. And now it's this year. This movie kind of allows you to go through time by just seeing the character age. And that's pretty much enough. Yeah. You don't really need to know specifically, oh, what year is this? Oh, what month is this? Oh, what location is this specifically? Who cares? They're in America. They're in England before. Those aren't what's important to this character. Yeah, so I, I talked with Michael about this because he's a musical theater actor uh, mm-hmm. train for, by training. And we, we sort of like broke down, like, how could you apply something like this to Bohemian Rhapsody? So since Elton John is a story about – it's the story of Elton's early career leading up to him going to rehab – the th- sure. tied together by the theme of looking for love. So the only real time in Queen's history where there's an interesting story is so there is a uh, the last album that Freddie ever recorded was called Innuendo. Mm-hmm. And as Freddie was recording it, he was dying and he couldn't he was too weak to tour. He was avoiding public scrutiny because he didn't want people to know he was sick. And he was so sick that he couldn't he, – he completely lost his vocal range. He could only sing like three octaves or I think before he could do like ten octaves or something crazy like that. So Gosh, that's awful. In this – you can read the Wikipedia on Innuendo and the production of it, but it, the Wikipedia, it like breaks your heart. Like you have this man facing the end of his life trying to make one last thing to cement his legacy. There's such dramatic weight in that period. If you wanted to do a Queen musical, you could make this musical about this period in Freddie's life and still use all the earlier Queen songs because Innuendo is not a popular Queen album. There aren't really – you could go up to most people who aren't enormous Queen fans. They wouldn't be able to name or sing any of the songs on that album. But the story Hmm. – that that struggle is so uniquely human – I find myself angry that they just wanted to tell the generic biopic story instead because the other members of Queen wouldn't have gotten enough hero moments if they had focused on innuendo, which is the only story to really tell there is Freddie Mercury is dying and trying to save his and trying to cement his legacy. That uh that sucks. <laughs> that definitely sounds like it would have been more interesting. Um I bet I bet a big deal too would have been like, how exactly do you advertise for that sort of story? Um, I mean, even looking at the Rocket Man's advertising, like you're saying, 
they did not focus on the drugs or the abuse at all in this advertising. So Bohemian Rhapsody, it made a ton of money because, like, Queen music is incredible. I understand why people wanted to see Bohemian Rhapsody. It is because it has Queen music, and Queen, they're one of the best bands in history. The movie almost made a billion dollars, $52 million budget, and it was very much marketed as the epic of Queen's entire career. And you do that, and I and I understand why, because you you could have made innuendo in a movie about that period of time, innuendo for like twenty to thirty million dollars, where mm-hmm. it's mostly focusing on them in the studio as Freddie's dying, but you can like throw in flashback sequences of big Queen performances. <clears throat> but you, so you could have made innuendo an innuendo movie for cheaper, but you also wouldn't have really been able to market it. And it wouldn't have had that epic scale, and you wouldn't have made a billion dollars. You wouldn't have made $900 million at the box office. That kind mm-hmm. of movie probably would have been lucky to make one or $200 million. Would it have been more artistically interesting? Yes. Would it have been a better movie? Yes. Would it have been a movie that actually stood the test of time? Yes. But because it's a capitalist system, they go for the generic biopic formula, and the results speak for themselves. Yeah, you really have to to um, provide for the lowest common denominator. Um, I think is the the practice that they were using. Uh, whereas this one, I think, understood that you can make a good movie and then leave it to another department to sell that movie to the audience that it needs to be sold to to make back what it needs. Um, because as much as you may have been, and I say you like in the royal sense, like as much as the average person may have been misled as to what rocket man was. I think what they ended up in the theater for was a much better experience than they were hoping for. I would hope at least. Yeah. Um, I think it was an incredible tale. I think it was a really good, uh, look into depression in general and the fact that everyone can deal with these sorts of things. And I think it really didn't shy away from stuff like sexual fluidity in a lot of ways that other movies will. Like, at at multiple points in the movie, he's asked if he's gay. He never once, I think, actually admits to it. No, no, Um, he does. He does. He does at one point? He says, so he tells his mom. Oh, yeah, he says. Yeah, he tells his mom I'm a homosexual. Uh, He tells his friend that he's gay. Uh, He, when he gets, when he has that very short-lived marriage, and the group asks him, hey, did getting married to a good woman make you happy? He said, no, I'm gay. So. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's not like he's saying gay like he's only... Okay. when Being gay in the time that he grew up in is very much something that's going to play a role in his life. Because in England, I believe it was illegal for a very... Probably as he was growing up, it was still yeah, I illegal. Think I, I, for some reason, I thought he may have been like bisexual or pansexual or something. Um, He had... I think he identified as multiple sexualities, but like he currently identifies as gay, so that's what you would call him if that's what he says like you know there are gay people who have romantic relationships with women but it's they still say that they're gay it's like like sexual orientation is a very personal thing exactly and i think it was really nice to see uh him kind of learn to deal with that and also speaking to what you're saying about it being illegal and that sort of thing you're only really shown in this movie the majority of the time the response to him being gay isn't so negative unless you're talking about the situation uh, with his girlfriend uh, in the apartment or with his mom. Um, and that's mainly because when he is talking about his sexuality or when he's acting on these impulses, he's either alone or he's in the celebrity community where it probably would have been more accepted and less like 
I don't know, a huge thing. And I, and I don't think that he wanted it to be, I don't think they would have wanted it to be like, oh, wow, it's it's okay to be gay, kids. Like, if you're telling the story of Elton John, you have to show mm-hmm. him be discovering that he's gay and having gay relationships. Because anyone's story about, especially a story about love, has to show them falling in love or thinking that they're falling in love. And if you're telling yeah. the story of a gay person, you've got to show them having gay relationships. <laughs> Because <laughs> it did the, it did something that I think I and, and maybe you've seen a movie that's done this before, so you might be able to speak on this. But when he tells his mom that he's gay, his mom says initially, oh, I already knew that. And in my head, I was like, oh, that's an interesting switch in character perspective. I didn't know that she would, you know, kind of lean this way. But then she says something else. She says, I already knew that. But you need to understand that you're never going to be able to be loved properly, mm-hmm. which in my opinion, is almost as bad as just saying you don't love them because of their sexuality. Yeah, so it's this, it's this like cheapening of what you're doing. Essentially, I don't know if there, there's multiple. You could read it as she says, because you're gay, you're not going to be able to be loved properly. Uh, mm-hmm. I the way I sort of read it is the other way around, where him being gay is tangential to her. She doesn't really care. It's more uh, she's she cares more about if he's happy and she sees the life that he's leading. She may not know how to separate him being gay from him having this abusive relationship, but she sees him doing things and making choices that are going to lead to him never being happy. And she's right in that sense. She's mm-hmm. not, she's not right about the, the gay part, obviously, but she is right that the life he's leading, the the partner that he's with is not regardless of gender. That's not going to lead him to happiness. That's going to lead him to a, to an enormous spiral. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think it, it could probably be interpreted both ways, but either in either sense, she's essentially cheapening the life he's attempting to live at the moment. Yeah, she. Yeah, they, he has a difficult relationship with his mother, but she does turn out to be right. But once he learns to love himself, like I think it's it's the the line at the end of the movie. Once he learns to love himself proper, he is able to meet his husband, his actual husband, later on in life. Yeah, he literally ends up embracing himself at the end. And I think it's it's really good to see I maybe they did say it at the end, but regardless, it it's kind of showing that it's not as simple as just a decision you make in your head, you know, like a snap choice. You have to ask yourself a lot of questions. You have to deal with a lot of hard truths from other people. You have to deal with what people have been saying to you your whole life and eventually you'll get to the point where after enough of like looking inward and enough of, you know, being in an environment where someone can actually assist you with this sort of uh, mental, with these mental issues that you're having, then you can finally approach that and overcome it. Definitely a recommend from both of us. Uh, I'm going to try to see it again before the next week. Uh, Next week, uh, uh, we have a choice. Calvin, are you ready? Okay, what is it? So next week, we can either review the Ava DuVernay miniseries on Netflix about the Central Park Five, Ooh, that di- I did see that. That might be interesting, actually. Or we can review X Men: Dark Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> so Central Park Five. Damn it! Now, but the problem is now that you've put the bait down, Sam. Now I want to. Now I almost want to demand we completely ignore the Netflix special <laughs> and watch <laughs> X Men. What the dark? What the Dark Phoenix? <laughs> The Dark Phoenix. It's just three. It's just three again. It is. Yeah. <laughs> so Cal- it's just the third Calvin, one. You, you have a choice. You can watch one of the defining moments of uh, the conversation around the policing of the black community in America, 
or uh, mm-hmm. th- watch one of the worst superhero movies ever made. Yeah, and it I'm is. Just, it's going to be. Don't, I'm just it, guessing it it's going. I'm guess. There's no way it's good. There's no way. It, it has to. They haven't made. I'm sorry. They haven't made a good one in. Apocalypse. People, was, oh, people always say. Apocalypse was so bad, and the director has never directed a movie before. <laughs> so. People say. People say first class. It was it was it was fine. It was not good. <laughs> I really like First Class and Days of Future Past, but Apocalypse. Damn you, Sam! You're the reason these movies keep happening. <laughs> Apocalypse is a big old pile of shit, and there's no way a first time director's two hundred million dollar movie is going to be good. Sorry, it isn't. <laughs> so, like, I mean, someone. I mean, but what if Sam? What if someone made a movie about I don't know three teenagers who learned that they had telekinesis after falling into a hole? Wouldn't it make sense to then give that person an entire franchise based upon comic books that have been around for over fifty years to then carry into the new universe you're attempting to create as a studio? Wouldn't that make sense, Sam? Fan Forstick is what I'm talking about. Oh, I know. <laughs> Listen, I'll be at X Men Dark Phoenix opening night, but yeah. <laughs> So we are gonna. Wa- I'm. I'm gonna have to watch it. This I'm week. gonna watch it, but I don't really care to talk about it. I don't think there's gonna be anything interesting in X Men Dark Phoenix. Unless, I'm gonna watch both. <laughs> yeah, but I think discussion wise, we'll be talking about the Central Park Five miniseries. It is called uh, When They See Us, so you can watch it for yourself. Uh, yeah. And we, it's on Netflix right now. I would recommend watching that. Um, there have been countless podcasts. The last podcast on the left, my favorite murder, I think, of all covered this yeah. as well. So, so yeah, if you want um, to, this f- is about time that this sort of story was talked about. Actually. I'm curious if they're going to do Trump because you know after they got released, Trump wanted the said they should have been kept in prison and given the death penalty. So, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I wonder if he's going to make a cameo. It's not like that'll change anything. People will probably applaud him during the film. Of course. That man. Okay. Anyways, now I'm getting angry. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, four, it's a four-part miniseries, When They See Us, uh, and we will see you next week. Uh, just, I don't want to do it every week, but like, uh, just let you know, hey, if you like the show, you want to throw us a little little change, uh, there's two links in the description. You can give us a one-time donation on Anchor or a recurring donation on Patreon. Both those links are in the description of this podcast. Yeah, just don't throw the change too hard. I have very thin skin. Yeah, it's so thin. Yeah. Well, we yeah. will, we'll see you guys next week. Uh, I'll give my thoughts on Dark Phoenix. They just won't be, uh, you know, long. <laughs> maybe, it'll, maybe it'll be a miracle. Maybe. I, I know it won't. <laughs> Some Maybe it'll be good. I don't know. But uh, it's not. the only thing I do know is I'm not going to dedicate an hour to talking about it. You just wait. <laughs> It's a three-hour podcast next week.